So good morning. As uh, Pete mentioned, with Bob being out several weeks of this summer, he asked some of us to uh, fill in for him uh, with sermons, and I was one of them. And he didn't give any uh, suggestions or advice on what he thought we should uh, go through, so it was left up to each of us as to what we would uh, preach on or share about. And uh, try not to be too shocked out of your seats when I say that I'll be sharing about the law. <laughs> and I know this is a surprise to everyone. And uh, as any of my Awana students can attest, it will also be no surprise that I expect to talk a little bit longer than Bob. <laughs> uh, so we'll be uh, looking through Romans chapter 6. Uh, yes, the whole chapter. Uh, hopefully it will not be too tedious uh, for everyone. I know uh, as I was reading through and trying to figure out what to uh, land on, the whole thing just was pretty cohesive and I felt built a, a really solid uh, picture there to, to talk through uh, together. So we'll work our way through that. But uh, before getting into the text, um, just as a brief intro to the book of Romans, uh, as we know it, it was a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, uh, obviously in the first century, uh, so pretty early Christianity still still learning things, how to work together, what all this uh, Christian stuff means. And he had not been to the church yet. Uh, he had participated in uh, the the planting process and knew about it and heard about their faith and the good things going on there, but he hadn't visited yet, and he really wanted to. So he wrote this letter in the meantime to encourage them and teach them uh, some of the things that an early church incorporating both Jews and Gentiles would need to know uh, based on uh, his teachings. So he has kind of a long uh, intro, as Paul tends to do, and has a lot of uh, stuff going on there. But right after the intro, uh, he has this... Uh, well-known verse that he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So again, we get that note there, to the Jew and to the Greek, that's his audience, the Jewish and Gentile uh, church. But so he he mentions the gospel here uh, at the end of his intro, and that's followed immediately by about 11 chapters, (laughs) like 10 and a half chapters of the gospel. He has this vast thesis and dissertation on this is the gospel. Here is what it means. Here's what it entails. Here's how we understand the good news of salvation, what it means to be saved, how we be saved, why we're saved, all these things. Uh, And he gives various illustrations and examples uh, that would make sense to both the Jewish hearers and the Greek hearers uh, of this. So he finishes that at the end of chapter 11. We're looking at chapter 6, so we're right in the middle of this explanation of the gospel. Um, so he uh, spends this chapter explaining something that has uh, perplexed them as much as it has perplexed us, and that's the relationship between law and grace. And how do we deal with those? What do we do with those? What are the roles in the lives of humans for law and grace? We know that they're both there somehow. We, we hear about both of them in Scripture. So what do we do with those? What do they do <laughs> for us? And we'll, as we'll see uh, as we get into this, just as we struggle with it, they struggled with it too. It's a, it's a tough concept um, that he spends plenty of time in Romans Uh, helping to elucidate and explain what we're supposed to do with law and grace. So uh, just before we get into reading, uh, I think one uh, way to break this up is in two sections. Uh, The first section is something that Paul wants us to understand. 
He's going to tell us some stuff, and he says, make sure you get this. Understand what I'm saying. And after that, he's got something for us to do based on what we understand now. So something to understand, something to do. Uh, Since chapter 6 starts with kind of an interesting phrase that uh, refers back to uh, something he previously said, I'm actually going to start in uh, verse 20 of chapter 5. He says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So, for those of you uh, paying a bit of attention, you may have noticed I said that this chapter was about law and grace. I think he only uses the word law once. He doesn't seem to be talking about the law here. He's talking about sin, for sure. I think I counted 17 times he's talking about sin, sinfulness, uh, those things. But he doesn't say law. So, what's up? Well, 
turns out that you can't talk about sin, as Paul does, without talking about the law, at least implicitly. But they go hand in hand. Uh, the same author, Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, another letter to a church, he says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So we've got that kind of almost teamwork between uh, what sin does and how it does it with the law. And even in Romans, uh, throughout the book, he, he paints that picture too as he says, uh, the law came in to increase the trespass. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression or sin. So this is Paul's framework. He's trying to explain the gospel. He's trying to explain law and grace or sin and grace to us. This dichotomy between law and grace, but this seeming teamwork and and working together with uh, law and sin. Kind of a fine line he's walking here as he tries to explain the right way to understand it, where if you take too many steps off that line, it's easy to end up in heresy and saying things that are absolutely false. And uh, we get that phrase from Paul, by no means, as he looks at these things. So, is the law bad? Sin is bad. We know that. And he's connecting the law to sin tightly. So is the law itself sinful? Is it bad because it produces bad things in us? Well, we uh, see that question raised earlier in Romans, and his response there is familiar. By no means, absolutely not. May it never be. It's a Greek phrase, very emphatic, that is rendered those kind of different ways uh, throughout Scripture. And he is very clear, very adamant, no. The law is not sinful. It is not bad. And the way he concludes that section, he says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. No room for other consideration. It is absolutely holy and righteous and good. That's the law. That's, that's Paul's view of the law that God has given. Okay, the law is good and holy. And it teaches us how to be good and holy, right? So if we obey the law, if we follow what it teaches us, this good, holy thing, then we will be good and holy. That's pretty straightforward. We like that. Gives us a good explanation. Well, (laughs) the hitch there, as again in Romans, uh, he says in chapter 3, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. (laughs) Uh, uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So... What then? We, we can't just say the law is bad. He says no means. By no means, it's not bad, it's good. Okay, the law is good. But we can't do anything good with the law. So I guess we just kind of don't worry about it. Just set it aside, let it be what it is, and we'll do our own thing. I mean, God's going to forgive us anyway, right? If we sin, we don't obey the law, we do obey the law, it all turns out in the end, and God gets glory. Well, we'll pick up our actual (laughs) section here in chapter 6 as Paul looks at that idea as we look at what he wants us to understand. So the the first part, law came in to increase the trespass. There's that law and sin idea. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. What shall we say then? Here's here's that question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
So it's an it's a easy logic, and we see it presented uh, earlier in chapter 3. He says, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, when I sin, God gets glory through, through forgiveness, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why should I not do evil that good may come? And then he says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying these things, their condemnation is just. That's harsh. <laughs> but he's saying, no, that is not what I'm saying in any way that we are not to continue sinning. Which, it kind of makes sense, right? It seems like a viable option. We sin, God forgives, forgiveness, grace, glory to God. That's why we're here. That's the whole point, is to glorify God. And if our sin brings glory to God, well, that seems good. So Paul needs to explain that to us <laughs> as, as to the church in Rome. Uh, we have kind of these two ways, as I've alluded to, that we can get it wrong, that we can distort the gospel and the, uh, God's view of the law and, and what it is, what it does, how we're supposed to relate to it. On the one hand, as Paul's addressing here, we can ignore it. We can just say, well, we can't obey it anyway, and it's not going to sanctify us. It's not going to give us justification or make us good people, so don't even worry about it. Let's just do our own thing. Well, if you've ever heard the term antinomianism, that's what that's referring to. Antinomian means no law. We're just going to ignore it, pretend it's not there. Or a step further could even be there is no law. That the law is done, and we don't. It doesn't even exist anymore. The opposite side of that, then, naturally, is kind of all the law. Embrace the law. Yes, more law is is good. Uh, that to the point that the law kind of becomes an idol of its own. That you know we connect it to God. We connect it to sanctification and righteousness. And so we serve the law. That's a position. Uh, Paul was very familiar with as a former Pharisee. And even as he uh, authored that uh, verse in chapter 3, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. I wonder if he kind of pulled back at that almost as, he, as the words came out. Like, am I saying this? Knowing who he was, what, what his perspective of the law was, where the Pharisees would kind of use it as a selfish means of self-righteousness, justification of pride, of viewing themselves as better than other people looking down because we have the law. We follow the law so much better than you do. Well, selfishness isn't uh, just for the Pharisees. The antinomian view is often uh, very selfish too, where, well, I'm just going to continue doing what I want. Sin is enjoyable. It brings me pleasure. So I'm just going to serve myself knowing that God will take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. We're not going to deal with the legalism side here because Paul already took care of that uh, earlier in the letter. So here he addresses antinomianism, this idea that we don't need to worry about the law or there is no law or however people might have taken his teaching there. So as I alluded to, he's, he's earlier said this view is slanderous to say that Paul was teaching that. He says their condemnation is just if people uh, espouse these things. But then he moves on. It doesn't, he's like, I'm not talking about that here. He gets to it here now in chapter 6. And he gives us more explanation to this idea of can we multiply grace by heaping up sin? Sin leads to forgiveness for a Christian. More sin, more grace. What about that? Well, again, his response, by no means, absolutely not, may it never be. Get that out of your mind. It's not a thing. 
And he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? It's a, it's a ridiculous thing to consider that people who have died to sin would continue living in sin, would continue actively seeking sinful behavior. Just not an option. He says that through our baptism as Christians, that we're united to Christ, that we're buried with him in his death. He died for us, and so we can die with him in, in some respect through that uh, burial that he had. Okay, so Jesus died to sin, and he says we have died to sin. What does that mean? common option that, that we hear is if we think about the, the natural sense of death, right? If any, think animal, dies, whether um, a pet or human or whatever, some kind of animate object, uh, living thing dies, it stops doing things. It stops being sensitive to external stimulus, that it's not going to eat. It's not going to run away if something scares it. It's just going to be there and ignore, so to speak, anything that might come to it, that might happen to it. So is this the perspective of dying to sin? Basically, that Christians no longer respond to sin, that it doesn't tempt us, that it doesn't interact with us, that we don't even know that sin is there. Well, I think it's clear from the rest of Scripture, just big picture, that's probably not what Paul means when he says that we've died to sin. We have numerous passages from Paul and Peter and other New Testament writers to flee from sin, to not sin, to resist. Well, dead things don't have to resist (laughs) because they're immune. They don't even know about it. So if we have to resist, that must not be the dead that he's referring to. And I think we can all just, from our own personal experience, understand too that uh, we recognize sin. <laughs> we, we hear it. We feel it. It's, it's a part of us. We're, we're not dead to sin in this sense of not even being sensitive to it. Oh, we know. Christian sin. So to understand this picture of dying to sin, I think it becomes clearer as we consider the rest of chapter 6, but especially uh, early in chapter 7. He uses this picture of, of death again, but in a different way. He connects this dying to sin to marriage, interestingly enough. You know, we're, we're used to a, a good Christian marriage where it's love and mutual love and respect and honoring one another and serving together and, and all these things that go with it. But just as for us, there's a legal aspect to marriage, they also had this legal, kind of technical side of marriage that there are certain obligations and duties that you hold uh, to how you treat the other one, things that you do for and provide for your spouse. But if one of the spouses dies, that relationship is gone. You, you can't any longer serve your dead spouse. You can't do things for them. That relation, the, the legal relationship is gone. You're free to marry someone else if you want. You don't have to. But he says, if, if you try to marry another when you're already married and, and both are alive, that's adultery. You can't do that. But if they die, you're free from that relationship, and you can marry someone else now. And he uses in chapter 6 a similar human institution of slavery, where this is uh, another legal 
relationship, slave to master. And if the slave dies, obviously servitude is done. (laughs) Fed slaves also don't do work for their masters. So I think this picture of dying to sin is this legal idea, this kind of technical relationship between us as humans and sin. It's not a, not a personal one. Um, so verse 4 uh, says, in order that. It's a good phrase. I like that phrase. It helps especially in some of Paul's writing because it tells us exactly why he wrote this or why this thing is true. It gives us the explanation. We don't have to guess, uh, which is great because sometimes uh, we kind of have to infer and put things together, but not here, not in verse 4. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Why? In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the purpose. That's why we were buried with him. Uh, kind of counterintuitive, right? All these uh, perplexing aspects of the gospel that, that he's digging into is we died so that we can live. Okay, thanks, Paul. <laughs> we'll, we'll look at that more here. Uh, shortly thereafter, uh, he gives us that, that same phrase again, in order that, in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So here again, the purpose of what, what's going on, the purpose of this crucifying our old self is to make our old self nothing, to do away with it. Well, why do we want to do that? <laughs> well, it continues then. He says, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So that another indicator of purpose, of goal. So for one who has died to sin has been set free from sin. Kind of a, a sequence going here that he's, he's stitching together. I think it can help if we flip this backwards. Let's look at the final goal and figure out how to get there. The ultimate goal, the second purpose that he lands on here is that we're not slaves to sin, that we can be free from sin. Well, the, the way he accomplishes that is that the body of sin is brought to nothing. This, this part of us that has a legal bound to sin is brought to nothing. Well, how do you do that? How do you get rid of the, the body of sin? The old self is crucified with Christ. Now it starts to make some sense. We in our old self, our body of sin, are slaves to sin. He wants to change that. In order to be freed from this debt, from this slavery to sin that is owed, we have to die. And he says, but you don't have to die. Jesus died. And through faith, through believing this gospel that I'm explaining right now, by by becoming a part of that, you're counted as dead to sin. You have died to sin through Christ's death. Well, obviously, he said uh, that we would no longer be enslaved. So we were and this is the, the natural state that Jesus broke that bondage through his death, which, as, as we can see, is, is uh, understood to be the only way to break that bondage. You know, in, again, go to that picture of marriage. What's, what do the vows say? Till death do us part. It's the only uh, way that he explains uh, for, for this relationship to be uh, broken. 
So the end of this uh, section here, we end up with a juxtaposition. We start as slaves to sin and dead to God. But through this process of joining ourselves to Christ, he ends it by saying, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So it's a complete reversal of our state of who we're slaves to. Well, getting into that, it's easy to think that the opposite of slave is free, right? You think of most slavery conditions. If you get out of slavery, you are a free man, and that's good. In fact, that's the big American mindset, right? You're not the boss of me. No one can tell me what to do. I'm going to live life how I want. This kind of independence, fierce independence. I don't have to listen to what you say, unless maybe I want to. But that's not how Scripture presents it either here or anywhere uh, in, in Scripture that talks about our uh, relationship as uh, humans to well, anything, the world, our experience. Uh, it's not an option. There, there is no state of mankind whereby we can be free, independent, our own rulers, our own masters, do things our way. So the, the picture here is not a contrast between slaves and free. He doesn't say, you were slaves, but now you're free. The contrast is between slaves of sin and slaves of righteousness. So humans are always going to be in some kind of slavery. But that's not, that's not bad in the way that we tend to think of slavery, especially as Americans. So I know the new Disney movie Aladdin came out, the remake of it. Not, I can't comment on that. I haven't seen it yet. But hopefully some or most of you have seen the original animated movie, uh, Aladdin, from the 90s. Um, I'm a big fan. So... In that, one of the main characters is a genie, a mythical, magical character who was very cleverly named Genie. <laughs> and the, the lore around this genie creature, there's, you know, could be multiple of them, but the, the idea of genies is that they are slaves, they're servants, that they exist to grant wishes, basically. That when someone finds the lamp that, I guess, is their home somehow, uh, then that person who found it becomes their master, and they get three wishes, or, I guess, kind of commands, right, to give to the genie. And he has to obey. He has to do those things for his master. That it's, that's just how it works. There's no option for him to say, eh, no, I don't want to do that. No, your master says do it, you do it. Well, at the beginning of the movie, or early on, the main character, Aladdin, finds the lamp, becomes the genie's master, but he's, because it's a Disney character, he's a good master. He's nice, they become friends, he's helpful, everything kind of gets along, you almost lose sight of the fact that Aladdin is the master of genie, that he's a servant. It's just a, a picture of friendship for the most part, until such a time as Aladdin says, genie, I wish this. And then he says, Aye, aye, sir, and he does it. Later in the movie, the villain, Jafar, gets a hold of the lamp, becomes the master of this same genie, 
taking control instead of Aladdin, now the genie has to follow Jafar. Well, as the term villain might suggest, he was not such a good master. Selfish, greedy, mean, ruthless, basically just wants to get his own way without any regard for either his servant, the genie, or really anybody else who he might encounter. He just wants power and he wants to rule. Well, it's a little different for us, right? We're kind of backwards on for humans, that we're born into slavery to sin, as scripture indicates, but through which would which is our that bad master, the one that doesn't care about us and that would ultimately destroy us. But through the gospel, through the grace of Christ and his work, we get a new master. We get to become slaves to Christ instead of sin. And now we've got the good guy who is our friend and nice and is good to us. It's kind of the, the picture here of, of the new slavery. So again, very different uh, kind of, I guess, emotional idea from what he, Americans probably think of when you tell them, you're a slave, even if it's to God. You know, we're going to tend to pull back from that. And the Bible says, no, no, that's not necessary. He, he, God, righteousness, Christ, these words that he uses to describe our slavery, it's not like sin. In fact, Paul, at the beginning of the letter, starts that way. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. That word rendered servant in English is really just a Greek word for slave. He says, I'm a slave to Christ. That's what I do. I serve his will, and that's why I'm writing this letter, in fact, as a part of God's will uh, for me as a servant. So we died to sin. It no longer has this master authority over us. Uh, I'm guessing none of you find that much easier than I do to not just believe but act on, to, to live in accordance will with so I came across this uh, little story that I think illustrates well not only the idea of what it means to die to sin, but the challenge that we go through in letting go of that authority, we're recognizing the falling away of the authority that sin had over us. When as a young teenager, Stuart Briscoe was drafted into the Royal Marines during the Korean War, he came under the control of a particularly imposing regimental sergeant major who strode about the barracks leaving a train of tough men's quaking in their boots. Briscoe did not realize how dominant this man had become in his life until the day he was released from the Marines. Clutching his papers in one hand, he was luxuriating in his newfound freedom to the extent of putting the other hand in his pocket, slouching a little, and even whistling. Sins that would have been so heinous if they had been observed by the sergeant major, they would have landed him in big trouble. But Briscoe saw him coming toward him, On an impulse, he sprang into the posture of a Marine until he realized that he had died to him. He was not dead, and neither was a Sergeant Marine. But as far as the Sergeant Major's domination of his life was concerned, it was all a matter of history. So Briscoe did some reckoning, refusing to swing his arms high and march as if on parade and keep his back at ramrod stiffness. Instead, he presented his feet, hands, and back to his newfound freedom as a former Marine. And the sergeant major could not do a thing about it. I think that's a really telling, I mean, even for those of us who haven't been in in the military, and, and some of us have, to recognize that instinct that over years and years of 
training of knowing this is your boss this is your master you do what he says immediately and ideally he doesn't have to tell you anymore we see here just the sight of him caused him to do what he knew he was supposed to be doing according to his former master but that was an instinct he had to realize and remind himself no i'm not a marine he's not my boss he doesn't have authority over me and even if he doesn't like what i'm doing he can't do anything about it he has no right to tell me what to do so that's our position with sin it has no right to tell us what to do paul's thesis at the conclusion of this section of what it is that he wants us to understand is that those who are regenerate those who are born again in christ have died to sin sin is not our master we are alive to god and in light of that it's nonsense it's utter nonsense to continue in sin that was how he started this section was addressing should we continue in sin absolutely not and he explained why so now we continue to the next section what do we do what is paul telling us to do with what we now understand this better understanding of our relationship to sin and the law it's a it's a common pattern in the new testament to have what's called an imperative or an indicative followed by an imperative something to understand and then something to do with what you understand it's not just knowledge we're not playing jeopardy here we're living life and so what, what does that mean to us why do we care um you know it's it's like a, a stop sign right you can know what the stop sign means but you kind of have to act on it too when you come to a stop sign there is an expectation that not only do you know what it means but but then you do it so what do we do what is our imperative he says starting in verse 12 therefore because of what i just explained let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions so what do we do we work we fight this idea is it's forceful language right he says let not sin reign sin is a tyrant sin wants to reign we've died to sin but it still tries to enforce itself in our lives this is an active fight and to make you obey its passions it's not making requests sin is trying to subject you to itself is is the picture that we have and that's not surprising right we have this this picture of the the war the battle between good and evil uh, all over scripture and he says don't let it actively prevent sin from taking over you from making you obey what it wants you to do this is what we do he doesn't just say don't sin here's some sinful things don't do those it's, it's a passive kind of negative thing it's not something to do it's something to not do well humans aren't good at not doing things we're good at doing things <laughs> so paul you got to give us something to do because when we're passive sin will take over so he starts out that way he says do not present your members as to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but here here's the key part here's the do part present yourselves to god as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to god as instruments for righteousness 
So that's the active part. Forget about sin. That's, that's done. Don't worry. Present yourself to God. Come to God. Give yourself to him. This is an active part of our will. It's an active thing that we have to do in this fight against sin, in this not letting it reign in our mortal bodies. One thing I think is interesting in that passage, it uses the word instruments, our our members, our, our components, the things that make up us. Don't present them as instruments for unrighteousness, but present them as instruments for righteousness. That word instruments has the connotations that we would think, you know, you get kind of a tool. Think a hammer for a carpenter, a paintbrush for a painter. It's a, a tool you use to bring about your desired result. But elsewhere in the New Testament, and even some translations of this passage, use the English word weapons or armor for the same word, which fits really well with the implied battle that that Paul mentioned. Don't let sin reign over you. It's trying to fight it. Well, if you're going to fight, you need weapons and armor. And he says, don't, don't present those things to sin. It's the enemy. So I think of a soldier in battle with guns, ammunition, armor. Strip it all off. Just walk across the line. Hand it to your enemy. Here you go. This is for you. Use it as you wish. How do you think the enemy wishes to use that? Step number one is probably going to point it at you immediately, followed by pointing at the rest of your army, of your side of the battle. Paul says that to offer ourselves as, as dead men to, to sin, to offer ourselves intentionally to sin, is exactly the same as the soldier who surrenders intentionally his weapons to the other army in the middle of battle. Suddenly it's pretty clear why he says, may it never be. It is a horrifying thought to Paul. And he says it should be for us too. So he reiterates, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Well, if sin doesn't have dominion over us and we still obey it, we still do sinful things even though it's not forcing us to, then does that mean that it's always active? It's always this intentional picture of handing my weapons over? I don't think so. I think... This idea of that we need to be active. He says, don't let it. That requires awareness. It doesn't just require, you know, handcuffing it to yourself. <laughs> There's an active fight going on here, and it's easy for the active sin in us to steal our weapons, our members, from us if we're distracted, if we get our guard down, you know, we're sleeping on the job, so to speak, and the enemy can sneak in and steal stuff from us. We have to be vigilant. Peter, talking in the, the similar idea, says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, your enemy, the one who is trying to destroy you, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. So Peter says, be watchful, always ready, always alert to your enemy. And when he makes a move, Resist. Know that that's coming. Be ready to stand against what the enemy is doing 
And in Peter, he describes the enemy as the devil directly. But for Paul here, the enemy is our former master, sin. And not many slave masters like losing slaves. So sin is no different. It will try to get us back or at least make us do what it wants as though we were sins, uh, slaves again. So it will take an opportunity that it gets. Don't give it those opportunities. So kind of the conclusion we have here is this idea of free grace that we will be forgiven of our sins through the grace of Christ uh, or the grace of God through Christ. And that's problematic uh, to us as it was to them, or I should say some of us, the way we think about this idea of free grace. Some people now uh, might use phrase like, get out of hell free card, right? Do whatever you want, live life how you want, don't worry about it, you have salvation, you have this get out of hell free card that you get to go to heaven, regardless of what you do. Others uh, use a phrase like license to sin. If you're familiar with the phrase licentiousness, it's that idea of license to sin. Freedom. We can do whatever we want. We have Christian freedom, right? We can sin. It doesn't matter. We're going to be forgiven. Well, it kind of sounds okay, but really that logic only holds up in the mind of someone who is still a slave to sin. That is still looking for selfishness, that is still trying to really serve themselves, right? When, when we're slaves to sin, we, we don't know that. We think we're our own master, and so we're serving ourselves, but actually we're serving sin. And that logic makes sense there when yourself is your master, but it doesn't hold up in the kingdom of God among the people of God. That logic just doesn't make sense. Paul says, okay, we're, we're under grace. We've, we've got free grace from God against our sin. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And I think the first what then, the beginning of this chapter, he says, should we actively seek sin? Should, should we intentionally commit sins because we will be forgiven? And that brings glory to God. My goal is glory for God. I think the second question is, is less intentional. I think it's well, maybe we just don't need to worry about sin, right? It, it's bad. We're not going to do it intentionally, but, you know, whatever. If it happens, it happens. We're under grace anyway, so maybe we just don't need to worry that much about the law and whether or not we sin. Well, <laughs> Paul's favorite phrase, by no means. That is no better than the other option. That, that's still not an option here to, to not worry about sin and law because, again, the law is holy and righteous and good. I feel like I can almost hear Paul's frustration here as he's, he's trying to explain grace and the love of God and the forgiveness and the security that we can have in the gospel. He keeps explaining these, these wonderful truths that we don't need to worry about justifying ourselves through the law. We can't. So you don't need to try to do that. Don't worry about whether or not you are saving yourself. But then he also says we're, we have grace, but, but not, not licentious grace. 
he keeps getting these ideas that people either have or will take wrongly about what he's teaching, and he can just hear those arguments in his head, and then he pens them. He presents those arguments himself uh, preemptively and then explains why those are wrong. And I can just almost feel the frustration of him trying to, to wrap people's heads around this difficult concept uh, of, of law and grace, of, of freedom and slavery at the same time. So he comes again to this, this metaphor of slavery, of offering ourselves. But so here are, are the two masters in view, our sin, which, as we said, leads to death. If you continue with sin as your master, you will die. The other master is righteousness, which he says leads to sanctification. If you obey this master of righteousness, you will be sanctified. So we have a new master. We had one. We have a new one. And the idea, problem is, we're looking at the the possibility of basically serving two, right? I'm a Christian. God's my master. But maybe I want to serve sin sometimes too. Jesus says that's never an option. You can't serve two masters faithfully. You're always going to love one and despise the other. Now, the ordering may change. You may switch which one you love and despise, but you can't do both at the same time. So I think kind of putting it in a perspective that we're more familiar, maybe more comfortable with, is you have a job. Most of us have or uh, have had jobs. You have a boss. You're supposed to do the work that they give you. Well, maybe your, your job doesn't pay as much as you want or need, so you take up a second job. Not a big deal. Common thing people do that. Well, what if you decide while you're working for boss one, eh, I'm going to do a little bit of work for boss two. That way I can get double work, double money. Well, if boss number one finds out that you're doing work for boss number two, that is not going to fly. They are not okay with that. Well, maybe you're like, oh, it's only an hour or two a week. And I'm working 40 hours for you. It's only like one or two hours that I was working for the other guy. Uh, you're probably still not going to have that job for very long. (laughs) It doesn't work. So, but the idea of slavery is even more extreme then, right? Slavery is not full-time 40 hours a week. Slavery is like all the hours kind of full-time. So there's never an opportunity for a slave to serve a different master, another master who is not rightly his master. You can only have one right master. Now, Paul's not saying this is an impossible situation to sin, to serve sin. It's just abjectly unacceptable. By no means shall we seek that or even be accepting of that. And he says he's putting this in human terms. So it's not, there, there's something limiting about this. And he's using common non-spiritual words and experiences to describe this relationship that we have between sin or we have with God. That I think if there were a storyline, if there were like characters and, and a plot happening, we'd call it a parable, right? Jesus has those. But because it's not a parable, really it's just an analogy, Paul says. It's just human terms. It's not literal. It's not the full depth of what I'm trying to explain. It's just a piece. Because Jesus, right, says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Because I've, I've told you what I'm doing. We're, we're in this together. We're friends, not slaves. 
Well, but then Paul says, well, we're slaves to Christ. Basically, we got to take all of it together, that there's some ways in which our relationship to Christ is slave-master, and that being such as obligation to obey, that he is our authority. And any authority over you, you're obligated to obey uh, what they have. But in some other respects, we're friends with God, with Christ, that we're mutually loved, mutually known. We care about each other, not just ourselves. So to wrap up this imperative section then, we know what he wants us to understand. We know what he wants us to do with that. And his conclusion in, chapter, in verse 19 mirrors verse 13 almost exactly. He says, just as, you were once pre- just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. It's the key takeaway for Paul in this section, to actively present yourselves as slaves to righteousness, which will lead to your sanctification, which itself leads to the glory of God, which is how we started this idea of seeking. Well, we're not quite done. He's got this little, at least in, in most Bibles, probably paragraph, few sentences at the end, that it's not what to understand and it's not really what to do. I, I think of it as kind of a, an extra bonus section. It's, well, why? What, why do we care about this? We know that we were slaves to sin and God changed that state because it's a bad state to be in. But Why? Well, he says it's bad because when you're in that state, it's fruitless. You're not getting any benefit from it. It's shameful, and it leads to death, ultimately. He doesn't even need to explain why leading to death is bad. We get that. Okay, well then why is our new state any better? We're still slaves. Why is that better situation for God to have transitioned us into? Because that leads to sanctification and eternal life. So we have that contrast. We moved, as he said earlier, from death to life. Then we have the famous verse at the end. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have, I think we've probably all heard that at various times, but now we see a little deeper context of what that means. Why is he presenting it that way? A relationship to sin is transactional. Wages is a, a payment, something you're due for work that you've done. Well, the work we do under the master of sin earns us death, and sin will be happy to pay that wage for us. But our relationship to God is loving. We have this picture of a gift, not a wage, that he chooses to offer to us something of himself, from himself, yet for us. So eternal life is that gift. It can't be earned. We can't go to law. We can't earn salvation, sanctification, righteousness, these things that Paul probably would have been seeking himself before his conversion. But we can dishonor it by thinking lightly of it, by ignoring it. And we can disrespect the giver by turning to serve other masters that may clamor for our attention, that may clamor for our servitude, or even try to steal our attention and service. Quote here says, Regenerate Christians should no more contemplate a return to unregenerate living, 
than adults to their childhood, married people to their singleness, or discharged prisoners to their prison cell. So again, this is active. We need to be on guard against this roaring lion, against our former slave master that seeks to reign in our bodies. But he gives us this hope that that we can do that through our death and burial with Christ, that we have his Holy Spirit in us now, enabling this battle, raising us to life, into the newness of life, he says, through Christ and for God. And that, as, as we've talked about this morning, is available to everyone, that the God is a willing and accepting new master to those who seek him, to see, who will love him and honor him in this eternal life gift that he gives. Which is uh, simply through faith, through trusting in this death and burial that he has and being willing to join ourselves to that death and recognizing that we've always been slaves but now we can choose who our master is. So, close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these truths for helping us to understand our relationship with you, the new life that you've given us, that you have freed us from sin. We don't have to serve its passions, that we can look to you and find life and sanctification and joy in our relationship with you and serving you according to your will and our own good. And I pray that you would remind us throughout the day, throughout each of our days, that this is an active part for us, that we need to seek you and resist. I pray that you give us power to stand up, stand firm, and resist when sin rises up in us to make us obey its passions. Help us to seek you and honor you in those moments and always. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.